Welcome to the second lecture in our series, Music Under Stalin, where we are going to ask the most crucial question, in my view, how can music be socialist realist? And I've chosen this painting for you, which to me very much represents uh, socialist realism. It's a sports parade. It's by Yuri Piminov. Um, and you can say just by looking at it, well, we know what socialist realism sounds like. It sounds like this. So this is the refrain that they're singing. Uh, I don't know another country where one can breathe as freely as here. Uh, something that sounds quite ironic when you think that this is uh, a song written in 1936, so just before the, the most the huge uh, wave of repression and uh, mass arrests and mass murder, uh, which was followed then by the war, and then another uh, wave of repression, slightly smaller one, and which was preceded by a less visible wave of repression. So um, there is this lie at the core of socialist realism. Um, it's supposed to act as a veneer, as a beautiful, joyful veneer for something um, that is not that at all. Um, and that is quite tragic, and I don't think we should, should forget about it, and that's why I will be sometimes talking about various biographies of the people that we're going to quote from. Uh, when I talk about socialist realism and music, to me it's completely uncontroversial that it's an important topic, but I'm always challenged on this, so I've, I've listed these challenges, and I thought I'll get rid of them straight away. Uh, so people say, well, wasn't socialist realism just a power game? Um, it's not a coherent aesthetic, uh, it's something that one official say, well, I think it's socialist realist, and another one will say, well, it's, I don't think it is. Um, yeah, and you can basically choose, pick and choose. It's a, the rules are quite arbitrary. And, well, there is, there is that side to it, but at the same time, having been born in the Soviet Union, I just feel like I know what socialist realism is. I can recognize it when I go to a metro station or when I go to, to hear some music. I just know it. It's not just an aesthetic, something nebulous. It's also a style. Um, other people say, well, why denigrate perfectly nice pieces of music by using this label? <laughs> this was a charge. Um, leveled at me by one of my colleagues from Russia who, who was absolutely appalled that I called Prokofiev's Fifth Symphony socialist realist mm, and because she likes it. Well, I like it too, but I think, you know, that socialist realism is somewhere in the background still. Uh, he at least um, attempted to be socialist realist and it maybe he didn't quite succeed, but there was something in the back of his mind because it was a forced aesthetic that everyone had to adhere to. And... Uh, so I uh, imagine it as, as a kind of quilting point. Yeah, if you imagine the, the quilted sofa or something like that, then you, you spill breadcrumbs on it. Yeah, the breadcrumbs are going to end up uh, in that quilting point. So if socialist realism is a quint, quilting point and you, you write lots of music around it, somehow it's important that that, that point is there. Yeah, so even if uh, we can imagine that in the West, um, there would have been music that is, sounds very much, very, very similar to music written in the Soviet Union. So why, why design this special label for something that was written in the Soviet Union? Um, and indeed, you know, I don't know, I recently listened to Arthur, Arthur Bliss's Piano Concerto, and that could have won a Stalin Prize. Yeah, some music by Aaron Copland sounds very socialist realist to me. Yeah, so the, there are examples. But I would argue that even every single note is the same. But one piece was written in the Soviet Union and another one, say, in the United States, they will be different because there is, there is that concept, context, yeah, because there is that forced element of it, um, of this aesthetic that people had to adhere to. Uh, and finally, um, there is this new thing that is happening at the moment in Russia. And I wanted to spend two minutes talking about this because I'm very passionate about this issue. There is this new thing, let's forget socialist realism like a bad dream. 
I went to an exhibition when I was in Moscow just a few weeks ago and, uh, of this wonderful painter, Yuri Pimenov, uh, whose paintings are already presented uh, on many occasions here. And this is uh, one of his most famous ones. I think it's a fantastic painting. Um, it, it's about the steel industry. It's from 1927. It's kind of expressionist and constructivist. Uh, when you see it face to face with it, it, it's just stunning, absolutely stunning colors. You know, so, so, such so dynamism and power from it. Uh, then in the 30s, he changes his style completely. And this is uh, his famous, uh, very famous, I, I like it too. You know, it's in the style of French Impressionist. You know, there's a bit of the after the rain feeling, slightly kind of wet canvas. Um, uh, and uh, it's New Moscow. Uh, that, that was also became very popular, won some prize. But it's a completely different style. And then it gets even worse. Um, and in the 50s, it's just, you know, he starts doing absolutely awful things, which are not even impressionist. And you would think, going to the uh, exhibition, that it would be explained to you. But there's no explanation. And then I, oh, I wasn't going to buy a catalog, but I um, went to the shop and I photographed a bit of the catalog and translated it for you. Oh, my goodness me. Yeah, so uh, this is about the change of style. Were the reasons for this turnaround entirely personal? Perhaps not. We should keep in mind various new aesthetic trends, the zeitgeist, the unavoidable arrival and establishment of alternative ideas, which no artist could ignore. It has been observed but that artistic developments in Russia coincided on the whole with developments in European culture. For the artist tuning in uh, to a new sensibility, which is in the air, and transforming it into an image is an imperative beyond explanation, something that is almost irrational. Well, you know, that, that really made me sick. I, I actually had to like, go straight home. I couldn't do anything else. I was so fuming. I was ashamed you know, for people who created this. This is a theoretical gallery, and apparently they're following, must be following some kind of new ideological directions that we have to kind of just forget about it. There was not a word Stalin or Soviet in this exhibition. It was just a free artist who changed his style at will, yeah, because there was something in the air. Now, what was in the air? For example, he was declared a formalist. He lost his income. He couldn't feed his family. He was very worried about that, so he changed his style. Yeah, so it, it's a little bit different. So this is why <laughs> I'm, going to be, I'm going to be talking about socialist realism, and I think it's, it's very important to understand the art of that time. Okay, so rant over. This was my introduction. Um, and now we are going to talk about the history of the term socialist realism. So uh, Marxists usually supported art that was realist in some way, although Marx didn't really write anything on aesthetics, and Engels did write very little. And usually it's this quote from his letter to Margaret Harkness that is being quoted. Realism, to my mind, implies, besides truth of detail, the truthful reproduction of typical characters under typical circumstances. This will come up again. Uh, anyway, there, there was a, a, a kind of theory made out of this. And Lenin added uh, also to this the notion that since human consciousness reflects the material world, art should do likewise. Yeah? Rather than offering an escape from the world, uh, it, it should create this reflection, an image uh, in your mind. His model of literary, uh, literary realism was Tolstoy. For Engels, it was Balzac. Um, for Lunacharsky, uh, who was a Bolshevik and then became yeah, the first commissar for the Enlightenment, um, it was uh, Maxim Gorky, who was the, the paragon of realism. And he was the person who started coming up with these labels, proletarian realism in 1906. Uh, social realism in 1907, new social realism in the 20s, talking about um, visual art, the visual arts, not music. And, uh, but actually the term, um, yeah, I was trying to look really for the, for the latest research, and it seems that the term socialist realism is Stalin's own term, and that it emerged uh, somewhere in May 1932 in a conversation with Ivan Gronsky, who was put in charge of um, basically bringing all the writers into, into the same union, yeah, because they were fighting before that, yeah, there were various factions, and he was put in charge of this unification. 
And why is it not socialist? It has to be socialist and not the other things that Gronsky suggested to him, as he tells us, not proletarian and not communist. Yeah, so it couldn't be proletarian because Stalin was at that point fighting the proletarian faction of the writers, yeah, because they, they created this um, very restrictive set of rules and a lot of good writers just didn't want to participate in this. And Stalin, of course, was himself a poet, a yeah, literary critic. Uh, he really understood something about it. He, he, that's why we're talking about literature uh, at this point. Uh, anyway, why not communist? Because communist realism, he says communism is too far in the future, and also it might bring people to think of the world revolution, which was Trotsky's concept. So again, politically not an expedient term. We are now building socialism in one single country, and we're going to call it socialist realism. So Gronsky, uh, this is the first time the term is published. Um, Gronsky says, we must pose the problem of method, but not in an abstract manner. It, it's not that a writer has to pass the course in dialectical materialism first before he can write. Our principal demand is that the writers write the truth and truthfully reflect our reality, which is itself dialectical. Therefore, the main method of Soviet literature is the method of socialist realism. Yeah, so despite Gronsky being quite important at that time, everyone understands that for somebody to tell you what the main method is, he has to be the mouthpiece of Stalin. Yeah, so this is the official, uh, official line. Although uh, it, the term is officially promulgated yeah, as the aesthetic doctrine for the Soviet Union only in August 1934 at the first Congress of Socialist Writers. But what about music? Yeah, what are we going to do with music? Uh, straight away in various meetings of musicians, this term was discussed. Yeah, because if, we, if it has to be our aesthetic doctrine as well, we have to decide what it, what it means. So there was a number of articles published in 33 and 34 to discuss this issue. And I would like to put in particular from one of them, and this is quite an interesting person who wrote it, a thesis on, on socialist uh, realism and music, Boleslav Przybyszewski, uh, who was a Pole, as you can guess from the name, yeah, who was interned during the First World War and exiled to Siberia. That was his first arrest. Then in 1933, after he wrote his thesis, he was arrested and sentenced to three years um, of uh, gulag camps for homosexuality. So he went to Siberia, served his sentence, did not come back, decided to stay there as a volunteer working for the theater, was then rearrested, brought to Moscow, sentenced for treason this time, and executed in 37. So this is just the, the kind of for, for the background you know, of people who are participating in this. But he was actually, despite being known as uh, the director of the Moscow Conservatoire during the proletarianist times, yeah, when it was uh, a very restrictive institutions, I think he actually may, may have saved the institution rather than destroyed it during those years. And he was, I think, a true intellectual who, who tried to engage with these issues seriously. Because if you write, um, if, if you read somebody else writing on socialist realism at that time, sometimes it's just words spinning. It just <laughs> doesn't mean anything. So I think that here there are some, some useful things that we can get from it. So the first thing, he talks about socialist realism in a pragmatic way, as a, as a style and not just a method. Yeah, so that was useful. The composers pricked, pricked their ears. What should we do? Uh, and then he says that the obvious thing, but needed to be say, said, in comparison with realism and literature and the other arts, music is greatly restricted in its ability to represent reality. Yeah, so it represents types, the typical rather than concrete unique phenomena. And everyone said, phew, you know, we don't have to portray those particular minds in, in the Donbass. Yeah, we, <laughs> we can do something more, more general and vague. So um, then uh, he says that, well, socialist realist music must be programmatic in the broadest sense of the world. Yeah, so you can portray struggle in general, 
but not necessarily a struggle of a particular Red Army division on a particular front, yeah, and so on, which is what, what people were doing. For example, there was a, um, a Shostakovich's professor, um, Maximilian Steinberg, who at that point wrote a symphony which was called Turkship, yeah, which was the um, railway from uh, Central Asia to Siberia. Yeah, so it was supposed to represent that particular railway. And so there are a lot of very, very concrete uh, detailed textual references in the music that was written at that time. Uh, so in this way, yeah, it seemed like socialist realism was actually broadening the number of opportunities compared to the previous, previous period. So it, it was seen as a good thing. So he comes up also with the idea of musical image. Yeah, so if our consciousness reflects material reality, it reflects it in images, so we have a musical image, which is a kind of in the middle between reality itself and the music. Yeah, so this is where we can verbalize music, and we can say this is where the content resides, in this musical image, the image of struggle. Yeah, so the music itself gives us a march, gives us dotted rhythms, gives us trumpet fanfares, the image is struggle, then the reality could be uh, you know, something much more concrete, yeah, and so on. Yeah, so you can see how this works. I mean, that's a little bit of, uh, I, I suppose, kind of word acrobatics, but nevertheless, um, you can see how you can uh, getting into what to actually do with this. He also calls to study the realist music of the past. And the good thing was that the realist music of the past included almost everything, yes, apart from church music um, and uh, the recent bourgeois modernism. So he was not so sure about things starting from Debussy and Stravinsky, these kind of things. Yeah, but he called everything, you know, there was naive realism, dynamic realism, static realism, came up with all these labels, and basically it opened up uh, a, um, a wealth of possibilities of what models you could use from the past, which again, as I told you last time, was severely restricted by the proletarianist ideologues. And one more, and this is very interesting and very important for what we are going to hear today as well, he includes folk music and folk-based art music in the category of the most obvious realism, just next to things that are onomatopoeic, yeah, just represent sounds, um, or things that are kind of symbolic, like the ring in, in Wagner, or the sword, or something like that. And next to that is folk music, because it represents the people in the most direct way. And that is great, because whenever you write something on folk tunes, yeah, your music is realist. That's fantastic. So, um, that was developed then further. There's another uh, article by Raman Gruber, who was a musicologist, who suggests that this Engels' idea of typical, of the typical in realism can also be applied to music, and that the most typical melodies that we may perceive as banal, for example, something from a Bizet opera, or Verdi opera, or Schubert serenade, are actually realist. Yeah, so that's great as well. Yeah, we can, we can hope that we can create this very accessible art through the music that might sound conservative and banal, but actually for that very reason, it is realist. And another thing that he suggested, that we should not shun pure abstract music, yeah, music without the title. We shouldn't shun symphonies and concertos that don't necessarily reflect the Soviet reality directly, because, he suggested, uh, this kind of music can potentially be more useful as it convey class ideology to the listener in a more subtle way, kind of inculcated in, in the listener. So um, I think that was already yeah, giving you a very good recipe of what kind of music you need to, to write. But then comes the first Congress of Soviet writers, and of course everyone, it was a huge event, there was a lot of foreign guests, um, and everyone was listening to the speeches and reading the speeches. And the most useful sound bites came from Andrei Zhdanov's speech, which was a political speech. Yeah, he was a party representative in charge of the arts. And these are the things that he mentioned in his speech. Yeah? So that subject matter, images, and language have to be derived from contemporary Soviet life. Uh, that's not so easy for, for music, but I suppose you, you, you can start imagining what you would do here. 
Literature, he's talking about literature again, should be optimistic in essence as belonging to the progressive class. Yes, since it belongs to the progressive class, things are going to resolve and be great in the end. Yes, so you have this great shining ending. Whatever is bad right now, whatever you're portraying in, this, in your realism, you know, there might be some negative features, but you have to have in mind this shining future. You're already thinking, in terms of music, it means the optimistic ending in the major. Yeah, that's what it really means. So, not objective reality, but reality in its revolutionary development. Yeah? So, reality as we, class-conscious proletarian uh, writers or composers, want it to be. Yeah? So, maybe not quite realism then. He says uh, that you shouldn't be afraid of the charge of being tendentious. Whatever you're doing is always going to be political. And he also said that we shouldn't abandon revolutionary romanticism. Oh, great, romanticism can be part of realism as well. Yeah, so, uh, talking about supreme spirit of heroic deeds and magnificent future prospects. So, thinking of music, you will think, oh, okay, so the orchestration is going to be big, it's going to be monumental, yeah, there's going to be a lot of choir. Um, uh, what else? Yeah, it, it, it's going to be all sort of shiny. Uh, another important point, the technique and skill are very important. Yeah, so you have to study. It's a, it's a complete turnaround compared to the previous, um, previous period, yeah, when people are saying, well, you, you have to study Lenin and Stalin and dialectical materialism, and somehow then you will learn to write music in the correct way. Well, no, yeah, you actually have to, to study harmony and counterpoint again, yeah, to become a good composer. So, um, and finally, yeah, there's a need to select all the best that has been created in this sphere by all previous epochs. Yeah, so all the past is suddenly opened. Yeah, the, we inherited all these things. We don't just call them, dismiss them as bourgeois. We actually want to use these things uh, in the best possible way. And this is why um, in the visual arts and in architecture, you find these, these uh, incredibly eclectic conflations of different styles. And I wanted to give you a few examples. Well, this, of course, is a building that was never built in Moscow. This is the palace of famous palace of Soviets, as envisaged, envisioned in 1932. There was many, many um, proposals for it. And you can see at the back there is there's the Moscow University, which uh, is already envisioned, but it uh, hadn't been built yet. And, you know, the Kremlin is completely dwarfed by this, by this huge, absolutely huge thing, which might remind you of uh, the, the Lighthouse of Alexandria or something like that. Yeah, so um, there's quite a lot of references in that building. Actually, this time being in Moscow, I felt very much that I'm still living in the Stalinist city of these broad streets uh, yeah, and, and, and a lot of greenery and things like that, something that's been designed as a, as a city of the future. It's very, very uh, obvious and even you know, more obvious than it was 10, 10 or 20 years ago. Uh, things like this, you know, when you travel on the river and you're on the canals and you envision these locks and suddenly you're into some <laughs> Italian Renaissance of Italy or something like that, there might be a Roman style, a Florentine style. Uh, I mean, why would you put on a dam, you know, something with these arches? Well, this, is, this explains to you that you should take the best from the past, from different periods of the past. But of course, uh, you know, things like this, which are very inspirational. Uh, yeah, this is from the metro. Um, uh, Mayakovsky station, if you look up, and uh, yeah, you're underground, but you actually see uh, the sky. So there's a lot of blue sky, a lot of technology, airplanes, uh, sport that is represented also in this very heroic way of actually people flying. Um, of course, socialist realism visually changes as well and gradually kind of becomes more sedate. Um, and there's a lot of folk motifs uh, yeah, that are coming in. Uh, and uh, originally, there might be sort of quite a, uh, geometrical things that are, are, playing, are playing in. But in these, within these geometrical shapes, um, there are also representation of very diff different nationalities of the Soviet Union, yeah, and they're all usually playing musical instruments and dancing, yes, which is uh, 
very typical. And then the later you go, the more ridiculous it becomes. And uh, it's a completely <laughs> um, bizarre combination of you know, Trajan's columns or something like that, actually made of crystal. Um, and this uh, medieval chandelier and uh, that, that's in Leningrad. Um, and th that came right after Stalin's death when the aesthetic was changed and they decided this was too luxurious. So um, they built some of the columns in crystal and then the, the rest of them were just in marble. <laughs> so they downgraded them. Um, in uh, painting, uh, you know, this I think is a, is a kind of narrative painting which is typical of socialist realism. Um, so obviously Stalin and Varashilov the it's, the it's just been raining, yeah, but the sky is about to break open, the clouds are about to part, yeah, there is this sense of the future, there's the sense that the Moscow is being built, uh, you can see the, the more recent kind of Soviet building there with the flag, it's not actually, can't be seen from that point. Yeah, well, you know, that's revolutionary romanticism. Yeah, so it's not necessarily, necessarily representing reality literally, yeah, literalistically, but in its revolutionary development. That's why we can move that building here so that we can see it from this point. So, um, uh, now what about uh, sort of musical socialist realism? Uh, and nobody has given a list like this. This is my own list. This is something that just comes from thinking about it, how people would have translated Zdanov's points into music. So it meant using conservative forms, eclectic styles, romantics and Russian classics were safe models with a bit of modernization, but not too much. Possibly neoclassicism, but not so that it sounds too much like Hindemith or Stravinsky. So something that is more classical than modernist, or maybe not so much neoclassical as classical. Optimistic endings, of course. Interesting thing, also very um, important for what we're going to hear at the end, virtuosity, yeah, especially concerto. It becomes a very uh, typical form of Soviet music because you have this uplift yeah, at the end when you have something virtuosic being played. Uh, you have this sense of um, that it's a life-affirming piece. Um, and uh, uh, that becomes a very popular and safe genre to use as well. Folk materials, again, as long as they're not presented in the modernist way. So not Stravinsky, not Bartok, but more kind of Rimsky-Korsakov uh, and his students. Organic development rather than montage. So, so this is how quality is presented in the music. Yeah, so uh, music has to develop like a tree, you know, grow without seams. It's not like, you know, you use um, sort of plonk one uh, mass song in there and then another one and it's all kind of rough and ready. No, it has to be actually sort of properly developed like the Germans taught us in the 19th century and so on and so forth. And uh, very importantly, yeah, the, pres the presence of a narrative. Just like in paintings, there's always narrative. You can always tell a story about a socialist realist painting. You should be able to tell a story about a work, even if it's just called a symphony. And who, who uh, makes up the story? Sometimes the composer himself or herself would, would put uh, some, a few lines that would set your mind working in certain directions. Sometimes it would be a musicologist or a critic that would, uh, would propose that. And uh, interestingly, you know, composers who, who were not uh, naturally narrative, like Prokofiev, I think, is not really a narrative composer, did have trouble fitting in with this uh, requirement. So, uh, now we're going to finally yeah, talk about music and about a few models that were um, at that time, very early on, 32, 33, talked about as potential potentially yeah, proto-socialist realists and potentially, um, I mean, maybe not completely 100% good yet, but on the right path. So Lev Knipper, uh, you probably haven't heard of him, but you know some of his music, I'm sure, as you'll find out in a moment. So the symphony that was talked about much was actually symphony number no. three, but there isn't even a recording of it, so I'll have to switch it with symphony number no. four, but... 
Worry not, it's exactly the same kind of thing. It also has a mass song in it and it has uh, this very um, uh, kind of straightforward um, selection of sections with, with strong contrasts. The most important feature of it is that he uses his own song. And that song you're going to hear and recognize in the <laughs> You know it, don't you? Yes. So, very simple harmony, three chords basically. I think the proletarianist composers could have done that yeah, without much learning. So, very, very simple harmony. And it's not like it's in the style of these soldiers' songs. Uh, that Knipper would have known very much because during um, the Civil War, he was actually fighting in the Civil War on the side of the whites, yeah? unexpectedly. Very interesting character. Just tell you a few things about his biography. I mean, you can see he is um, a very cool-looking guy. He was an exceptionally cool guy. He was a secret spy. Uh, yeah, secret agent. Uh, he was. Uh, he spoke German freely uh, because of his roots. You know, he traveled between the West and the Soviet Union. Um, during the war, he was trying to organize Hitler's assassination. Um, and nobody knew about this in the U Composers' Union. Yeah, they just knew him as somebody who wrote these songs uh, and, and, and symphonies um, about the Red Army. He was very so closely connected to the Red Army. So uh, this is, um, it's not actually, you know, there's a book about it which, which you can read. So it, it's all true because he, his sister was Olga Chekhova, who was um, a German actress. So she could actually arrange for him access to Hitler. So it, it's actually a true story, absolutely extraordinary. Let's hear how this uh, song sounds in the symphony. Yeah, which was very much at the, at the time um, praised, uh, eventually started seeming a bit primitive. Yeah, so the, the quality aspect of it, the organic development type, yeah, he was he was a bit low on this. So this is why I'm saying this is very much early on, yeah, in the socialist realist period, um, and that type of most sort of direct uh, references to Soviet life, such as the poem of the Komsomol fighter, is supposed to be yeah, actually having sung text in the symphony, slightly starts going away in the next few years. But if you are in 1933, every symphony has a text, every symphony has a chorus. So they could have actually stayed with that. I mean, the fact that you, you then move on to the next stage, where suddenly you can write a symphony without a text, without a chorus, 
and say that there's still music that is Soviet and socialist realist is actually didn't, would, wouldn't have necessarily happened if all this word spinning had been done. And so it's kind of important to justify that kind of thing. So um, here we come to um, the next example. And the next example is precisely this symphony number no. 12 by Nikolai Miskovsky, which was actually written in 1931, so well before socialist realism was even named. But nevertheless, uh, it turned out to be a very important um, point, a very important landmark. So um, at that time, Miskovsky was still working at the conservatory, but basically almost not able to work. He went on leave because he just couldn't tolerate this, this uh, proletarianist composers misbehaving there, and most of them were his students. And one of these students was Marianne Caval. And we have this wonderful note that Caval sent him one during one of the meetings, suggesting to Miskovsky the kind of symphony he wants to write. So, Enya, uh, what would you think of a topic like this for your symphony? Sowing the seed. The new men come out to fight nature, not just as individuals, but now as a collective, and their attitude to nature is also different. You could build a symphony out of this, from the sufferings of endless toil through to a joyful and inspired collective construction. This, in my opinion, is a great topic. So this uh, Marianne Kaval, who didn't even attend his classes, tells him what to do. And Miskowski has to say, yes, you know, I'll do this reluctantly. But um, then Kaval, of course, empowered, you know, as a cultural commissar, writes him a long letter when he describes the symphony and what he should and shouldn't do, and how he should educate himself and read Stalin and Lenin, yeah, and dialectical materialism, and um, you know, all the mistakes he ideological mistakes he is likely to make. He actually sort of lays it all out and suggests a few texts that he should use. And Miskovsky um, basically does none of this. He pretends that he received this letter too late and already completed the symphony. Yeah, so the symphony is actually doesn't have a text, doesn't have a title, doesn't have a choir. It's just a three-movement uh, symphony, number 12. But because there was this backstory, the backstory was publicized. So the symphony was premiered as agricultural symphony or collective farm symphony. Yeah, so there was this uh, phantom program flying around it, floating. Yes, nobody and people started you know, hearing various things. But the only thing that you can really put your finger on is this narrative, musical narrative, very abstract one, that comes uh, through these three movements. And I'm going to show you to you how it's done. So it starts, and we can imagine this is not collectivized Russia yet. Yeah, so somebody is coming out into the field and very lonely, uh, in a lonely way, singing a song, a sad song about how things are terrible. So then in the second movement, you have more action, and everyone felt there was some kind of struggle. You know, there was struggle for collectivization going on. Yeah, all the kulaks were uh, arrested and sent to Siberia, and lots of them were killed. So apparently this is what people heard in this music.
Well, then in the finale, of course, he will have to have the diff very different, very joyful tone, yet to represent the victory of collectivized labor. At the end, you will need to have an optimistic ending, so I'll just play you the very end of it. So that's emphatic enough. Now, how did Moskowski feel about all this? He was slightly embarrassed about this symphony. He actually confessed in one of the letters that he considered his finale came out a bit vulgar. Yeah, so it was something that he wouldn't necessarily do himself, yeah, something that he felt forced to do. Um, and uh, he, he didn't really want to, to promote his symphony uh, quite so much. But it was promoted for him, and uh, people were writing um, this very detailed explanation of how uh, we move from non-collectivized agriculture to collectivized agriculture. Yeah, so that actually harmed the symphony a little bit because then start, uh, people started saying, well, we don't think that's represented well enough, you know, we don't think that content is reflected in quite the right style of music. Yeah, so you can see that it's much safer for composers to say less. Yeah, or to say almost nothing. And for musicologists also to be very clever and provide only the, the slightest pointers, yeah, so that you don't let down the composer. Uh, and this is exactly what is going to happen in the next year, years and decades, and this is what we are going to talk about in the next lectures when Shostakovich starts writing his symphonies without titles. Yeah, and which have some kind of narrative strategy or and there might be a phrase, this or that phrase about it. For example, it could be a symphony about Soviet youth, you know, and then imagine what you like. So these phantom programs, I think, these, this verbalization of musical content that happens somewhere on the pages of, of the press or uh, in a program note, uh, is very important for um, creating this link yeah, of music with reality. So you can, I guess, claim that uh, realism is not so much in the music itself as in the commentary around it. But uh, uh, that, that's one, one way of thinking about it. So, um, and the third example that I'm going to give is uh, the violin concerto by Kachadrian. Yeah, I'm going to say it the, the Russian way. Yeah, Aram Kachadrian, as opposed to Kachaturian or something. It's easier for me. So Khachaturian, Violin Concerto uh, from 1940, uh, became this uh, very important piece, won, won, won one of the first uh, Stalin prizes um, was awarded this. And uh, several things came together here, because Khachaturian, of course, was um, kind of classified as a national composer. Uh, he had an Armenian name, he was Armenian by birth, but he wasn't actually from Armenia, he was from Tbilisi. He, was, he grew up in Tbilisi in Georgia and then went to Moscow, was educated in Moscow. Uh, and he started writing in this uh, almost Russian Orientalist style at first. Yeah, he was, his music was influenced by Rimsky-Korsakov, you will hear a little bit of Shehirizad uh, later on when our musicians are going to play his trio. Uh, and uh, he used also folk music from different regions of the Soviet Union. So it wasn't necessarily just the expression of the Armenian uh, yeah, nationality, but it, it could be a mixture, kind of friendship of the peoples. But because he was writing in this style, 
uh, it will seem as, again, realist music. Yeah? So the moment you introduce folk tunes, even if the folk tunes are not actually real, because very, oh, uh, very often Kachiran just invented them, uh, and uh, yet um, he was also, you know, had this great temperament and great desire to write music that was in the major, yeah, very life-affirming. And then couple that with David Oystra, who I would claim was a kind of poster boy of Soviet type of performance, yeah, maybe socialist, realist style of performance. So somebody who would perform, um, you know, if you wake him up at night, he would be just as reliable, always note perfect. Also, you know, emotion that is very communicative, that carries through. Not anybody who could be nervous, yeah, or kind of, you know, uh, mystical in his interpretation. So something, yeah, that, that was uh, considered to be a Soviet style um, of performance. So you couple Hedges around with Oyster and you get this absolutely fail-safe recipe. So let's hear a little bit of the finale. <laughs> that then Kachaturan was absolutely wedded to this style. He couldn't change his style anymore. He tried to do that in the 40s. He tried to do something more ambitious, something that wasn't based on folk tunes, and it was completely rejected. Yeah, he was declared formalist and suffered all kinds of criticism, suffered a lot of health trouble after that, and basically decided not to bother anymore yeah, and come back to this folk style. So that's again, you know, you are going to hear uh, his very early piece, a student piece, his trio that our musicians are going to play, where the style is kind of natural. This is what comes out with how he finds his face. But then, yeah, well, because of socialist realism, because of the forced nature of that doctrine, he cannot abandon it. He is now completely yeah, wedded to it. He has to do it for the rest of his life. So uh, I'm going to invite uh, our young musicians um, to play Kachaturian's trio today and uh, please welcome them. I'm just going to say a few words. Uh, so we have um, here uh, Jeremy Weinstein, who is on the violin, who is still an undergrad, and he is reading physics and natural sciences at Cambridge. Uh, we have Mark Zhang who, uh, on the piano, uh, who is um, a postgraduate composer at Cambridge, and uh, Madeleine Morris, who is uh, in Oxford and doing musicology as a postgraduate student on the clarinet. And I'll just say a couple of words about the trio because while um, it's a strange, uh, it's not quite a piano trio, yeah, normal arrangement. It doesn't have a cello, even though you can see that Strand himself has a cellist, uh, was a cellist. But it's because he wants to represent this transcaucasian ensemble of uh, duduk, kemancha, and the doll, the drums. So the piano actually very often will be doing <laughs> something uh, percussive yeah, and rhythmic to support the two soloists who are going to sort of to do this very improvisatory music for us. It's beautiful music. Um, it's uh, um, what, what, sometimes smacks of Scheherazade, yeah, at times. Um, it has very spicy, very tasty harmonies, doesn't it? Yeah, very jazzy harmonies, which everything is excused because it's folk music. Yes, yeah, so uh, thank you very much for your attention. I will, I will let you uh, give you this floor now.
<laughs> I think Kajiran uh, probably could have worked a little bit on the ending, you know, if he was aware yeah, of the socialist realism already when he was writing that. Yeah, he could have made it yeah, louder and <laughs> actually not going away, yeah, but rather more brighter. Yeah, but, um, well, I think that that was a lovely illustration. Thank yes. you very much for a tremendous evening. Thank you very much, Simon.